Amen. I invite you to take out your Bibles now and turn to John chapter 14. John 14, beginning in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for gathering us together as your people. Thank you for the privilege of being able to come before you in the name of Christ. Father, now as your word is opened, we pray that you would do what only you can to open our ears, our eyes, our hearts, and our minds, uh, to incline us to your testimonies. Lord, we pray that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you gave it, that it would not return to you empty. Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. May it be unto the conversion of sinners and the edification of your people. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So we pick up again with our series in John, continuing in chapter 14. To recap, we are still in the upper room where Jesus and his disciples have been celebrating the Passover feast. Judas has just been identified as the betrayer and has gone out into the night. And Jesus then turned to Peter and predicted his betrayal as well. Jesus, or his denial rather, uh, Jesus had also declared that he was leaving and that where he was going, his disciples could not come. His disciples are understandably then troubled. So Christ then turns to comfort them, instructing them firstly not to be troubled, but to believe in God and to believe also in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He promised to prepare a place for them and to come and to bring them to himself. In our text this morning, we'll see that the disciples still had not fully understood the reasons as to why they should trust in him. So let's dive in, beginning where we left off in verse 7. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. To know Jesus is to know the Father. 
Now, Philip is about to reveal that he and perhaps some of the others had not yet fully grasped this. Jesus has just called upon his disciples to trust in the Father and also in him. And here's a very good reason, a demonstration as to why Jesus is trustworthy, why he is even to be an object of faith. He is the perfect revelation, revealing of the Father. And so to know him is to know the Father. Jesus reveals the Father's character and nature so clearly and accurately that Jesus can say that if you know him, you know the Father also. If you have seen him, you have seen the Father. This has been the consistent testimony of John's gospel. Christ reveals the Father. Remember again the prologue to John's gospel. Jesus is the Logos, the Word, the one who was in the beginning with God and who was God. That Word then became flesh and has dwelt among us. Through him has come grace and truth. And John writes this, John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Christ reveals the Father. Now, this is likely confusing language uh, for anyone who's not familiar with Christian theology. Just to be very, very clear, we are not saying that Jesus is God the Father. Rather, Scripture is very clear. Firstly, that there is only one God. Remember here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one that there is only one God, and yet Scripture also speaks of three distinct persons, all differentiated from one another, and yet all of whom are referred to as God, who bear the characteristics of God, the attributes of God. And so Christians, forced by the biblical data, have historically confessed that we believe in one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So please don't misunderstand. Uh, when we say that Jesus is God, we are not saying that Jesus is the Father. However, because of their perfect unity, God the Son does perfectly reveal God the Father. Such that those who know Christ can be said to know the Father also. Well, Philip reveals his misunderstanding, his lack of understanding in who Christ was with his next question, verse 8. Philip said to him, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. D.A. Carson writes, at one level, Philip and the others truly do know Jesus, and therefore in the Son they have seen the Father, but they do not recognize this yet. As highly as they think of Jesus, they do not yet grasp that in Jesus, God has made himself known. To the extent that this is still beyond them, they do not know Jesus himself very well. Philip asks for direct access, for an immediate display of the Father himself. A direct theophany, 
a manifestation or vision of God. And in so doing, Philip joins the long line of people throughout history who have rightly understood that there can be no higher experience, no greater good than seeing God as he is in unimaginable splendor and transcendent glory. You may remember from our series in Exodus, this was the request of Moses. Show me your glory. Show me yourself. And even Moses, the greatest of the prophets before Christ, was only permitted to catch a glimpse, right, the trailing back edge of God's glory. Show us the Father and that will be enough. That will be sufficient for us. So you catch the implication in the request. Implying as if what Jesus has already said and done is not sufficient, is not enough. Jesus has said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Still your troubled hearts. I go to prepare a place. And if I do that, I will take you there. I will bring you back to myself that where I am there you may be also. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Perhaps then our hearts will no longer be troubled. Give us more than simply your promises. More than what we have in you. If we could just have that, that would be enough. Can you relate to Philip at all? I think many Christians have likely felt this way at some point. If God would only speak to me directly, I, I just need an audible voice. I just need a vision or a prophecy or a miraculous something. Then my heart could be stilled. Then I could trust. Then I could believe that would be enough for me. Well, if that's ever been you, then I believe that Christ's answer to Philip would be his answer to you as well. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? You hear the answer of Jesus sounds tinged with sadness. Right? It's one thing for his opponents not to recognize who he is. But after all this time, after three years of ministry, of countless conversations, countless times of teaching and instruction, do you not know me? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus was and is the fullest revelation of the Father that the world has ever known. The character and nature of God the Father are revealed nowhere clearer 
than in the person of the Son. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or Colossians 1, 15 and following. Speaking again of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See the person of Christ. Know Christ, and you know the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God, the manifestation of his glory, He is the invisible made visible, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, God incarnate. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Who do you think has been with you all this time, Philip? A mere prophet? An especially gifted worker of miracles? An archangel, perhaps? Show us the Father? That is exactly what Christ has been doing, both in his words and in his works. As he says, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, Christ's words, as he has said repeatedly, are not merely his own, but as the perfect son, he has spoken what the Father gave him to say. So with his works, the miracles he has performed, these have been signs, signs that point to something else. In this case, Jesus says they have pointed to the fact that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And so though they do not see it yet, we know that when Christ speaks, these are not merely the words of a prophet or a great moral teacher, but he speaks with the very authority of God. This is God the Son speaking. The Logos, the eternal second person 
of the Godhead, through whom and for whom all things were made. And he is in perfect union with the Father. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And so for Philip to say or to imply that he needed something more than Christ, something more from God, something more than what God had given in his Son, well, that was to miss who Christ really is. To say or imply that the word of Christ, the promises of Christ, are not enough. To say that something more is needed is to miss who Christ really is. It is to misunderstand his person, his connection to the Father, and therefore the authority of his word. Christ has spoken. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. I will return and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If you know Christ, if you know who he really is, then you know his word is enough. Now we are in a similar position to Philip in this respect. We too have the word of Christ we have been given many great and precious promises. For those who are in Christ, these promises that he made to his disciples apply to us as well. He will bring us to himself that we will be with him. If we are in Christ, we know that there are many other great and precious promises that we have been given. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. As Christ promised, I will be with you always to the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you, and no one will snatch you out of my hand. My grace is sufficient for you. So if we, like Philip, would say or imply that the promises of Christ are not enough, perhaps are not trustworthy, not sufficient, then I believe we need the same rebuke that Philip received. Do you not know me, Philip? Whose word do you think this is? Who is it that made these promises? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in a very significant way, we are actually in an even better position than Philip was at that moment. For we live on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. Redemption is accomplished. And so we have a greater knowledge of Christ's work a fuller revelation of who he really is, and a greater understanding of the totality of God's redemptive plan. We have the benefit of knowing more of the story than Philip did in that moment, and therefore, more of who Christ 
really is. The word of Christ is enough. Brothers and sisters, if Christ makes a promise, you can bet your life on it. You can take that to the bank. You can bet your soul on it. Christ is the truth, as he said in verse 6. You can trust him. You can trust his word. You do not need any additional revelation to confirm the word of Christ. For Christ is the fullest revelation of the Father. What we have in him is enough. Christ has shown us the Father in his life, his teachings, and through the signs that he performed. He has done the works that the Father gave him to do, and he has spoken as the Father told him to speak. Christ is enough. Let's continue on, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, this is a bit of a tricky statement. Some groups have used it as if Jesus meant to say that all Christians for all of time ought to be performing miraculous signs and wonders equal to and greater than those which Christ performed in his ministry. Now, some have tried to answer that view by saying that, well, Jesus was only referring to his disciples, the 11 that were in the room, and, and that they, in fact, did do greater miracles, as recorded in the book of Acts. I think that answer falls pretty flat when you see that Jesus himself did not limit the statement to the disciples, but he expanded it by saying, whoever believes in me, everyone who believes in me. So then how do we answer this? Well, firstly, I do not believe that Jesus meant that all of his people would be performing these kinds of miraculous signs and wonders. Again, as, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29, it is the Spirit who apportions gifts according to his will. And then Paul asks a rhetorical question. He says, do all work miracles? And obviously, when you get a rhetorical question like this, the implied answer is an obvious no. No, all do not work miracles. And so we see, even then, in that unique period, uh, in the early days following the outpouring of the Spirit, even then, not all Christians were working miraculous signs. So what then does Jesus mean in this text? In what sense will all of Christ's followers do the same works and even greater works? Well, I think we get a hint to the answer in the second part of Christ's statement, where he says, whoever believes in me will, do, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. There's a bit of a tricky explanation, but bear with me. B.A. Carson writes, Their works become greater precisely because of the new order that has come about consequent on his going to the Father. In short, the works that the disciples perform after the resurrection are greater than those done by Jesus before his death, insofar as the former belong to an age of clarity 
and power introduced by Jesus' sacrifice and exaltation. Close quote. So the reason that the works of Jesus' followers are greater is because they take place in a new age that is greater. A new age that was inaugurated by Christ's resurrection and uh, ascension and exaltation, which is his going to the Father. Remember, before the coming of Christ, God's purposes were veiled. There were hints, there were types and shadows, but the veil remained. The mystery was there. With the completion of the work of Christ, his ascension and exaltation to the right hand of the Father, a new era dawned. The kingdom was inaugurated. The veil has been removed. We have gone from shadow now to substance. We've moved from the hints uh, and, and types and shadows now to the true form of those realities. And so we live in an age of greater clarity regarding the redemptive plans of God and greater power and efficacy through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Carson again. The signs and works Jesus performed during his ministry could not fully accomplish their true end until after Jesus had risen from the dead and been exalted. Only at that point could they be seen for what they were. By contrast, the works believers are given to do through the power of the Spirit after Christ's glorification will be set in the framework of Jesus' death and triumph and will therefore more immediately and truly reveal the Son. So we could summarize this, uh, bear with me here. Uh, the works of the followers of Christ are greater, Jesus says, because he goes to the Father, which inaugurated a new age. And so those works, both the miracles that were worked in the early period of the church, uh, as well as the preaching of the gospel, both during and after that time, are now greater works because they more effectively reveal Christ than what even his own works on earth did at the time. Right? If we ask, what is the purpose of the signs that Jesus performed? Well, a sign points to something. Those signs were pointing to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Savior. And yet, in that era, before Christ had gone to the Father, only a handful of people believed. Only a handful of people understood what those signs signified. We see even Christ's closest followers had not grasped this. In contrast, after Christ ascends, the new age is inaugurated, and as we'll look at next week, the Spirit is poured out. Many multitudes come to Christ. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were added to their number in a day. The gospel then exploded across the known world, and still to this day is steadily reaching to the ends of the earth. These works are greater for Christ has gone to the Father and inaugurated a new age. Let's continue on, verse 13. <clears throat> Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, 
I will do it. And so here we are given further explanation as to how and why these greater things are done after Christ's going to the Father. These greater works are accomplished in answer to prayers offered in Christ's name. And so in this, we see that the contrast is not between the works that Christ does and the works that his disciples do, but rather between the works that Jesus performed on earth in the days of his flesh and the works that he performs through his people after his death and glorification. True kingdom building in this world only happens through Christ. And so all the glory, all the credit for what his people accomplish in making disciples, in pushing back the kingdom of darkness, in advancing Christ's kingdom, all the glory for those things belongs to him. Truly, all that we do that is true kingdom work is not us, but the grace of Christ that is with us. 1 Corinthians 15.10 And the redeemed heart would have it no other way. After a lifetime of labor and kingdom building, the faithful servant declares, All glory be to Christ. I must decrease. He must increase. It was not I, but the grace of Christ that was with me. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. Psalm 127. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And here Jesus gives his disciples an additional reason for comfort. Remember again that Jesus has told his disciples, I am leaving and where I am going, you cannot come. Nevertheless, they are not to let their hearts be troubled. For as we saw last week, Christ is going for their benefit. Christ is going to prepare a place for them, to make them a way to the Father. And he has promised to come back for them. Christians, therefore, are to live with an eternal perspective, living in hope and in joy, knowing that whatever our present sufferings, they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now Jesus gives another reason for comfort. Yes, he is leaving. No, where he's going, they cannot come right now. But Jesus says he is going to the Father and he is going there as their intercessor. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Christ promises to answer the prayers of his people. Now asking in Christ's name is not a magical incantation that will render all of our prayers effectual. Rather, asking in Christ's name is firstly the recognition that we have no right to come before God on our own, but we see that Christ himself is the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. 
And secondly, we see that it's not a blank check, for we must ask with right motives that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So you can see how this would be comforting to the disciples. Now the hope of one day being with Christ is wonderful. But it still feels like a long way off for many of us. While having this hope does transform any experience of trial or sorrow, the question comes, is hope for eternity the only blessing that Christ has given us? Is that the only comfort that Christ offers? What about the here and now? Jesus says, I may be leaving you, but I will answer your prayers. We may be separated physically, but here is another reason why this is for your benefit. I will do what you ask in my name. The blessing of prayer and the unique blessing of prayer with Christ as our mediator at the right hand of the Father is one of the reasons why we need not let our hearts be troubled. The hope that we have in the life to come is not the only comfort that we are given. We are not abandoned in this life, left to walk alone in our own strength, cut off from Christ until he returns or calls us home. No, we are given many blessings, many graces, new mercies every morning. The promise of help and strength and the grace we need to honor God. And one of the greatest privileges and blessings that we have is the blessing of prayer. To simply be granted an audience with the King of Kings is a privilege greater than we can imagine. But more than that, not only are we permitted to come into his presence, Not only are we permitted to bring him our prayers and petitions and requests, but he has promised to answer them. We have been told that prayer is powerful and effective, that it has great power as it is working, James 5, 16. We are told to be persistent in prayer, like the widow coming back again and again and again to ask the unjust judge for justice, Luke 18, 1. We are invited to bring our prayers and petitions before the Lord. Always remember, one of the great blessings of being a child of God is that you always have somewhere to turn. You always have somewhere to go with your struggles. I'm speaking personally. I don't know how I would have made it through difficult seasons of life if I would not have had access to the throne room of God. To have a place where I could go to pour out my heart, to bring my burdens, my pleas and petitions, and to know that they are not just dissipating into emptiness. They're not just evaporating into nothingness but are actually being heard by my Heavenly Father, delivered by the Spirit through Christ, my Mediator. What a comfort. What a blessing. 
to continue with the theme that we've been looking at for the last few weeks, we see through the scriptures that prayer is one of the central remedies that we are prescribed for anxiety. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious. Do not be worried. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Rather, pray. Pray earnestly. Pray persistently. Tell God about all of your troubles as if he didn't already know. Tell them to him like you would tell a close friend or a father, or a mentor. And then ask for his help. Let your requests be made known. Ask for help, for strength, for resolution to your problem, for him to meet your need. And notice one of the keys in this text. Pray with thanksgiving. Thank him for who he is. Thank him for all that he has done for you. Count your blessings and give earnest and honest thanks to him in prayer. Even as you tell him your troubles and ask for his help. And the promise here, if you will replace your anxiety with persistent prayer and thanksgiving, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The old hymn goes, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. God promises peace. Notice he does not promise that your circumstances will always be changed. We are not guaranteed comfortable lives. We are not promised pain-free existence, health, wealth, and prosperity, and all that. But we are promised peace. The peace which surpasses understanding. The peace which perhaps doesn't make sense to the world. The peace which is hard to explain to others, given the difficulty of your circumstances. God promises his grace, his peace. That we may honor him in every situation. And in this passage, we see it comes in answer to prayer. Test God on this. What do you have to lose? Find out for yourself what kind of an impact a robust prayer life can have on your anxieties. Cultivate in yourself this response to anxiety. When you start to feel anxious, you feel it rising up in you, 
Pray. Pray right away. Bring this text to mind. Quote it to yourself. Put it on your fridge. And then pour out your hearts to God whenever you feel anxiety rising. Make a habit of that, a, a practice of that. Put the anxiety to death, as we covered previously. Slay it with the truths of God's word, preaching his promises to yourself, and then go to the throne room of God. Let that become your default response to anxiety. Through discipline and practice, get this to be your habit, right? The point where it's your natural response. Anxiety arises, you pray. You answer that with prayer. You bring it to the Lord. You refuse to let worry dominate you. And you instead go to God. The one who can actually do something about your situation. The one who can give peace to your troubled heart. Always remember, you have a mediator. If you are in Christ, you have a high priest who shed his blood for you. You are coming before the throne in reverent boldness, in the name of Christ, because he has invited you there to bring your anxieties, to bring your requests, your burdens, and your griefs. What greater cause for comfort could you have than to know that as you bring your prayers to God, Christ is the one pleading your case. And so this was another reason for the disciples to be at peace. Christ was leaving, yes, but he was going to the Father where he would plead on their behalf. Christ has the ear of his Father. We may come boldly into his presence in prayer because of Christ. We are told that he will answer when we come in his name. And so for the disciples, we see that what would have been a cause of anxiety, right, that Jesus was leaving them, is turned around again and becomes another reason why his departure is actually to their benefit, to their advantage. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Christ has the ear of his Father. If they could be objective, they would realize they want him there. You want him there. Father will not turn aside the requests of his son. And the son is pleading for the acceptance of all his people. Those whom the father gave him, Christ came to redeem. Christ has provided their righteousness with his perfect life. He has borne their guilt on the cross. He has risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the father, where he now ever lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you are in Christ, 
then your great high priest is praying for you in the presence of God the Father. Bringing your prayers and petitions and pleading your acceptance and forgiveness. And just to illustrate the concept of mediation, of intercession, remember a few examples from the scriptures. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people of Israel. Right? He is, he is a go-between, pleading on behalf of others. Abraham attempts to intercede for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what we see powerfully in that story is that the effectiveness of the intercession depends, at least in part, on the reasons that are given. Remember, Abraham pleads that if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, that God would spare it. God agrees. Abraham keeps negotiating, gets the number down to 10. But if there are 10 righteous people there, God agrees to spare Sodom for the sake of those 10. Now, ultimately, Abraham's attempt at intercession fails, for evidently there were not even 10 righteous people in that city. So you see, the basis of Abraham's intercession turned out to be faulty, turned out to not be an effective plea. So we ask, what about Christ? Upon what does he base his plea? As he pleads the acceptance of his people before God, does he cry out like Abraham, Father, spare them for their own righteousness? Upon what basis does Christ plead their acceptance? What reason does he give? The answer, his blood. His perfect sacrifice. His perfect righteousness. Father, he says, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept those for whom I have died. If I have pleased you with my life, then accept those who are united to me by faith and are now clothed, draped in my righteousness. Father, if my sacrifice was sufficient, if my atoning death accomplished its aim, then forgive those for whom it was made. The Father will not deny the intercession of his Son. Christ is a perfect Savior, a perfect mediator. The Father was well pleased with him. And the Father accepted the sacrifice that he offered. And of this we have proof. God raised him from the dead. Remember, Christ was made sin for us. The Lord had placed on him the iniquity of us all. So consider this. If Christ had not satisfied the full demands of God's justice, if there is still something owing, something incomplete, insufficient about the sacrifice of Christ, would God have raised him from the dead? Would God have exalted him? Would he have raised him up to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name? See, the resurrection is proof that the Father accepted the work of the Son. Christ's sacrifice was perfect. 
His righteousness is perfect, and his intercession is perfect. Come to the Father through him. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is a perfect mediator, and for this reason, you, like the disciples, want him to be nowhere else but where he is, at the right hand of the Father, where he answers our prayers and lives forever as our mediator. Amen.